You're listening to Understanding Sin and Evil. Dr. Miriam Brand on the Bible, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Ancient World. Learn more at understandingsin.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Understanding Sin and Evil. I am Dr. Miriam Brand, and sitting with me here once again is my friend, Melissa Cantor. Hello, everyone. And actually, Melissa, I'm going to give you and also our listeners a little recap of the last episode that you missed. We're talking about prayer, and we're still talking about prayer in the Second Temple period, and its attitudes towards evil inclination. Now, again, I want to remind you guys that I am picking specifically the prayers that deal with evil inclination. The prayers that we talked about in terms of demonic influence, we discussed more in our episode on the Watchers and in prayer. And now what we're really talking about is prayers that reflect this idea that humans have an inclination to sin. And we looked at how prayers that are generally considered non-sectarian, in other words, these are not prayers that were written or composed by the Dead Sea community, those prayers approached this idea of the evil inclination. And what we saw was, and again, remember that we're distinguishing a little bit, and I, I do this because for myself as well, because in general, the Jewish approach is really to see sin as an act of disobedience, whereas certainly at least some Christian approaches are to see sin as kind of a state of being. And what we saw was that it's still sin as action, but we do see the evil inclination coming closer to kind of an idea of a state of being. But usually most of the prayers we looked at looked at either the inclination to sin as kind of an evil plant, like to be plucked out or a disease madness. We also saw this idea in Forq Barchinafshi that sin is somehow connected to one's physical organs, right? You have, uh, let's say, an eye of lecherousness, and then the lechery has to be removed by God. And there's a general approach in prayer that one needs God's help, that God has to remove, let's say, your heart of stone, remove the evil nation, allow a person not to sin. And we saw one of the logical consequences of that when we saw in a communal prayer that it says, God, you have abandoned us to sin, or don't do not, rather, do not abandon us to sin. In other words, if we need God's presence in order to fight the inclination to sin, that if God's presence is not with us, we are abandoned to sin on our own. Now, again, this is a stance of prayer. This is because when one prays, one is making oneself humble before the divine, feeling how powerful God is, feeling how kind of worthless you yourself are, and therefore it's natural to say, I can't fight the evil inclination on my own. I turn to God for help. However, we still saw that the evil inclination is usually portrayed as something somewhat external. It's inside, but it can be removed um, by God, as opposed to let's let's compare that with Ben Sira. Ben Sira, who's talking about the evil inclination as essentially your character. You have it, and then you have a choice. So here we've been seeing evil inclination is not uh, quite a state. It's something that, as in rabbinic literature, it's almost like some kind of disease that then has to be cured by God. However, we did see in Forky Barchinaf, he's kind of coming close to this connection with the physicality of people that is connected somehow to one's organs. Again, we haven't quite reached this idea of a state of sin, right? One has an evil inclination. God can remove it so that one can be righteous, or one can sin and continually sin and say, God, I know that I sin. Please help me fight it. But we haven't seen this kind of idea of this general state 
that has to be removed, even though you could say you could interpret some of these prayers as talking about that. What we're going to see the idea of a state of sin much more clearly when we look at sectarian prayer, in other words, prayer that's actually connected to the Qumran community. Now, again, I'm explaining that we last, in our last episode, we did discuss prayers that were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. And whenever we find prayers in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have to distinguish between whether we think the community wrote these prayers or whether they were simply prayers that existed that were then adopted by the community. Prayers that we discussed last episode were prayers that were either existed outside of the scrolls as well, as with the Syriac psalm, or prayers that, while they we know about them from the scroll, don't seem to reflect sectarian language or necessarily sectarian ideas, and so they seem to be more general prayers. This episode, we're speaking about specifically sectarian prayers, prayers that belong to the Dead Sea community. By the way, those who disagree and say, why are you calling the Dead Sea community a sect? I'm calling them a sect because they describe themselves as separating out from the Jews. They say, we left the temple. They're talking about themselves as a separate group. They are therefore, from my point of view, a sect. Okay, I am going to continue to call them a sect and continue to call them sectarian. I'm not going to get any further into that argument here, but I believe fairly uh, strongly that we can call them a sect. So what are the prayers that I am going to be talking about today? I'm talking about one very well-known collection of prayers in the Dead Sea Scrolls called the Hodayot, and the other, which is the Hymn of Praise, which is found in the Community Rule. It's a, it's a prayer with, that's found within the scroll of the Community Rule. Now, these describe the desire to sin as an innate and, in other words, an inborn, inevitable human condition that requires God's assistance. We're used to that idea already. But what the Hodayot, for example, let's talk about what the Hodayot adds. The Hodayot adds a much more physical dimension of sin, more than we even saw in Farku Barchinashim. Now, the Hodayot, which is also known as the Thanksgiving Psalms, is a collection of hymns that was found in two different caves at Qumran. In other words, in, in more than one copy, its earliest fragments have been dated to 100 to 50 BCE. And these hymns are usually divided into two groups, hymns of the teacher and hymns of the community. And the, the hymns of the teacher reflect the personal experiences of the author, and the hymns of the community seem to be liturgical hymns. But how one divides them is a matter of some dispute. But both of these prayers, from my point of view, we can look at them as, as prayer. So humanity's innate sinfulness, the fact the very pessimistic view of people and their inclination to sin is, is very prevalent in the Hodayot. And this has always been noticed. But in the Hodayot, and this is something that we haven't seen much of earlier, it's the sinfulness of human beings is expressly physical. It's connected to the fact that they're a physical creature. A, a person is called a yetzer a creature of clay, a yetzer basar, a creature of flesh, and a ruach basar, a spirit of flesh. Okay, And when these terms are used, it's meant to kind of say how far people are from God. In other words, they're so physical, and this divides them from God. Now, I want to sit, go back to this idea of ruach basel, a spirit of flesh. This is what people are. People are a kind of a fleshly spirit, all right? As opposed to this idea that we have, let's say, in Paul, where you have spirit versus flesh, which is a kind of a Hellenistic idea. It's a Greek idea that you can divide your physicality from your spirit, and they're two very separate things. What we see in the Dead Sea Scrolls is that 
and I've mentioned this before, and I've used the same ep- same expression. It's baked in the mix. You're all kind of you're you are a fleshly spirit. That's what a person is. A person is something that has spirit and has flesh, and that because you have flesh, that makes you sinful. And so the sinfulness, now we're getting to sinfulness as a state, because sinfulness, as it is described in the Hodayo, results from humanity's natural physical state. It's not connected to any particular transgression or sin. So here, I'll I'll give you an example. Let me read to you a passage. I'm reading from Hodayot, column 9, the end of column 9. Yet I am a creature of clay and a thing kneaded with water, a foundation of shame and a spring of impurity a furnace of iniquity, and a structure of sin, a spirit of error and a perverted being without understanding and terrified by righteous judgments. What could I say that is not known, or what could I declare that has not been told? In other words, I am a human, and because I'm a creature of clay and a thing needed with water, I am a foundation of shame, a spring of impurity, a furnace of iniquity, a structure of sin, a spirit of error, a perverted being. In other words, it goes on and on and on. I am truly sinful in that I am human and therefore sinful. It okay. must take a lot, if we have all of that inside us, all that sinfulness, to acknowledge it and then ask for help about it. Right, right. So for, for the author of the Hodayo, for the composer of the Hodayo, What's required to remove oneself from this state is is God's actual involvement, okay, in lifting you up from the state. And we're going to get to that in just a bit. Well, to get to that state where you ask up, you have to see it in yourself that you have the evil and, and the well, sin. Well, that's the assumption. The assumption is in the Hodayot, it's not considered, I mean, the person who's speaking is also, um, later on, he kind of talks about being raised, that he's already been raised to this, like to be with the angels, right? And he's not talking about death. He's talking about being kind of free of the sinfulness. So clearly the fact that he realizes that he's this low, is you could say that that's a kind of a kind of righteousness, but he doesn't have to push it because there's the, the assumption is that you as a person who's a thinking person and a religious person, let's say in the terms of the, of the community, of the sect, uh, you recognize that you're sinful, right? Now again, in the Hodayot, this sinfulness, it really is a state. Now we're really talking about a state of humanity, of being a physical person that is sinful. This is, hear how different this is from what we talked about in the last episode, where it was a plant to be removed. Or even if you said God has removed the lechery of eyes from me, it's not the same thing as, and you go going about different organs and how God has changed me to be more righteous. It's not the same thing as I, because I'm a creature of clay, am simply this kind of well of impurity. Right? It, it, in, in Hebrew, it's just I, as this creature of clay, am therefore this kind of source, this well of impurity. Now, note that I did say Yetzel Chomel or Yetzel Chemal is a creature of clay. Now, we're used to saying that Yetzel automatically, assuming as soon as we hear the word Yetzel, we're used to automatically saying, oh, that means evil inclination. And sometimes it is used for evil inclination. And even in Second Temple literature, just Yetzel on its own, even in the Hodayot, we'll see one place where it's used that way in the Hodayot. But in the Hodayot, it usually means creature. In other words, Yetzel is something that God Yetzel created. It's a creature of clay. 
So when we say Yetzel here, we don't don't jump an inclination. It's just saying it's a creature of clay, you know. Yetzel Basar is a creature of flesh. So that's a creature meaning a person. A person is a creature of clay. Now note that in this passage, the speaker doesn't say he's guilty of specific sins. But because he's a member of humanity and because he's physical, he has this kind of lowly and sinful state. Now, the phrase creature of clay, which we just talked about, is, is reminiscent of the statement in Isaiah Nishayahu 29.16, should the potter Yotzer be accounted as a clay chomel? Should what, what is made say of its maker, he did not make me, and what is formed, Yetzel, say of him who formed it, Yotzro, he did not understand. And the other biblical allusions, there are other biblical allusions here also, talking about uh, the furnace that purifies Israel from dross in Ezekiel. It's a drawing from different biblical images, right, of people as kind of physical, but the biblical uh, phrases that it is referring to are not ones that talk about a state of sin. They're ones that talk about, you know, different things, different different things about impurity, etc. So, for example, if we read Psalm 103.14, it mentions the dust from which humanity is formed, but that's an expression of human weakness and mortality. It means that people are going to die. What are people? Because they're formed from dust. But here, the fact that they're formed from clay means that they're sinful. Not that they're going to die, not that they're weak, but that they're actually sinful. So for the Hodayot, the fact that people are physical means that they are sinful. I'm going to read another passage to uh, explore this in column five. It says, What is one born of woman amid all your great fearful acts? He is a thing constructed of dust and kneaded with water. Sinful guilt is his foundation, obscene shame and a source of impurity, and a perverted spirit rules him. If he acts wickedly, he will become a sign forever and a portent for distant generations of flesh. Only through your goodness can a person be righteous, and by your abundant mercy, by your splendor, you glorify him. And here's the way out. Right? So if a person is sinful, and they're sinful because they're physical, then what in the world is a person going to do? And the answer is that God, through his mercy, can somehow lift him out of this. Can lift him out of this idea that he's sinful simply because he is physical, because he is constructed of dust and kneaded with water. All right, And that in his very foundation, we have in the previous passage, well, in his very foundation, his very foundation is sinful. So you need God to lift you out of that. Okay, now again, this is not like the Paul's contrast of flesh and spirit, where these are two separate things already. Here we're talking about a person has a spirit and a body, and they're sinful. Okay, so how can one be lifted out of this? I'm reading now from Hodayot 19, lines 13 to 17, that is column 19. So here the speaker describes his purification from sin and his sanctification. And he, and he says, the result is that he can now be united with the children of your truth and in the lot with your holy ones. Your holy ones, one assumes being the angels. So that a corpse-infesting maggot, tolat metin, a corpse-infesting maggot, might be raised up from the dust to the council of your truth, so that he may take his place before you with the everlasting host and the eternal spirits. And what's fascinating here is we have the contrast. He says, I was a mag, a corpse-infesting maggot, and you've raised me to be with the angels. Now, on the one hand, this emphasizes the greatness of God. On the other hand, it emphasizes how worthless people are and helpless. God 
It is the presence of God that must raise one from the sinfulness to actually be with the angels. Okay? And so obviously one has to merit this kind this sort of thing, right? But this is what this is what God's mercy has done for the speaker. Why has God raised him? And the answer is because he's chosen. The speaker in Hodayot says, I have been, I've been chosen. It's my special status that allowed me to be free from this seemingly inevitable connection between humanity and sin, okay? And by choosing the speaker, the speaker, the petitioner, the person who's praying here, God has enabled him to resist the desire to sin, okay? So I'm going to read now from 4, 33 to 35. And the speaker says, as for me, I understand that for the one whom you have chosen, you determine his way. Remember I talked about the Dead Sea community and they have an emphasis on determinism. They really think that God has determined the path of everyone from the beginning of time. And we see it in different ways in different places. Here's one of the places we see it. I understand that for the one whom you have chosen, you determine his way. And through insight, you hold him back from sinning against you. And in order to, and we're missing the word here, something to him, his humility through your disciplines and through your tests, you have strengthened his heart. Again, we're missing something. Your servant, we prevent your servant from sitting against you and from stumbling in all the matters of your will. Here we really see God's intervention, right? Why intervene with some and not all? How does, what goes into the choosing? That's an excellent question. And if we put this back into the, the framework of the community, the idea is if you join the community, now you're one of the chosen. How do you know you're one of the chosen? The fact that you joined the community means you must have been chosen from the beginning because you recognize stuff in Jew. But of course, I'm, I'm combining things now, right? I'm combining the Hodayot and putting it back in the context of all the other community texts. But that, that seems to be the idea. The idea is when you join, you get help from God. Right. So like you join and that means you were chosen from the beginning to be one of these people who recognize the truth. Okay. And that's the idea. So the determinism that's described in the Horayot is, of course, completely to the speaker's advantage. The fact that God has chosen the speaker, he set his feet on the correct path and he's prevented him from sin. So now he's free from his innate physical desire to sin. So he says in Psalm 13, I thank you, O Lord that you have not abandoned me when I dwelt with a foreign people, not according to my guilt did you judge me. You did not abandon me to the devices of my inclination. And here he uses the word yetzel to mean inclination, in the, the, the devices of my inclination. So you didn't abandon me, and here yetzel seems to mean the evil inclination. You did not abandon me to the devices of my inclination, and you delivered my life from the pit, Right from Shachat, which is the pit, the classic, you know, you, you saved me from death, essentially. And you gave me escape in the midst of lions appointed for the children of guilt. Lions that crush the bones of the mighty and drink the blood of warriors. You've saved me from my enemies. You placed me in a dwelling place among the many fishers who spread a net over the surface of the waters and among the hunters of the children of iniquity. And there, for judgment, you established me. And the counsel of truth you strengthened in my heart. For this comes a covenant for those who seek it. Right? This person is speaking as God shows me, he saved me from the people who were my enemies. And he set me up as a leader for the people who seek God's truth. 
right? And here what's interesting is that when he says, Zimotisli, you saved me from the kind of devices of my inclination, he is describing the evil inclination as something separate from himself, right? But in general, when he talks about his inclination to sin, he's talking about it as this kind of basic part of physicality. But here there's still that idea that there's an inclination that's separate, that's somehow separate from me, that can kind of plot against me, can kind of draw me into sin. So... In general, in the Hodayot, the speaker presents himself as helpless in the face of his inclination to sin without God's help. In other words, he needs God's help. It's God's special relationship with the speaker that saves him from sinning, right? So if I read in column 11 here, I give thanks to you, O Lord, for you have redeemed my soul from the pit. From Sheol and Abaddon, you have raised me up to an eternal height, that I might walk about on a limitless plain, and I and know that there is hope for him whom you created from the dust for the eternal counsel. The perverse spirit you have purified from great transgression, that he might take his stand with the host of the holy ones and enter in the Yachad, the Yachad is what they usually call the community, in the Yachad with the congregation of the sons of heaven, namely the angels. So what do, we, what do we have here? This idea, I was a sinner, God, you intervened, you raised me up to be with the community and with the angels. How are they with the angels? How do they imagine themselves as being with the angels? Well, we have other prayers where they see themselves as praying with the angels. I think that they consider themselves kind of metaphysically to be to be grouped with the angels as long as they could maintain their status as being righteous. And maintain their status as being righteous meant keeping to the rules of the community. Now, that doesn't mean, I think, that any transgression against community rules would drop their status. As long as they stayed in relatively good relationship with the community as a member of the community, they had been raised in kind of a spiritual way to be with the angels. They're now free from their physically inevitable desire to sin. Okay, now again, that doesn't mean they can't kind of fall. We'll see that a little bit later. But remember that this is all in the context of determinism and kind of predetermination of all actions. So I'm, I'm reading now in the Hodayot, I'm still in the Hodayot, in Psalm 7. And as for me, I know by the understanding that comes from you, for one's spirit is not in the power of flesh, and Ewan's path is not his own, nor is a person able to direct his steps. In other words, a person can't choose his own path. And we're going to see in another episode, we're going to look at rule text and we're going to see how in rule text, that's not really true. In rule text, they look at predeterminism in a different way that allows for more freedom of choice. But in the Hodayot, a person cannot choose his own path, right? A human's path is not his own, nor is a person able to direct his steps. And I know that in your hand is the inclination of every spirit and on all its activity, you determined before you created it. In other words, in a final analysis for the Hodayot, the inclination is in God's hands. And this is also a more extreme view than what we saw in the non-sectarian prayers. The idea that it is God who is going to determine whether you can fight your inclination or whether you can't. Whether you can rise above this physical sinfulness or whether you cannot. It seems like it would mean more if a human decided for him or herself to ask to get rid of the evil inclination rather than have it determined in advance. It would take a lot to say, I want to be free of this and I want to be a better person. Right. And we saw this, we saw that sort of prayer in the last episode where we're just looking at non-sectarian prayers. And we are going to see what we're seeing in this prayer. And we'll also see a little bit in the other prayers, really praise of God, that God has already done this for me, as opposed to a request, because this person is already presenting himself as having the status, 
And I think that's the idea that the person has already had this kind of state. You could almost talk about it really in terms of this kind of purified status that he can now say, thank you, God, for doing this for me, as opposed to God, please do it for me. Because you're saying, God, please do it for me. There, there is a little bit of that that I didn't read, but in general, the idea is that God has already done this for me. So now it's a thank. That's why it's hodayot. Hodayot meaning thanksgiving psalms, right? Let's let's put each thing in its proper context. Really, these these prayers are prayers of thanksgiving, of thanks to God, because they're prayers of thanks to God. He's not asking for it. He's saying thank you, God, for doing it. And if God hasn't done it, and a person is still sinning, does that remove any of the blame for the evil things that person? That does? is an excellent question. And what we'll see soon, relatively in a close episode, maybe in the next episode, I'm not 100% sure, but we are going to see this soon, that in rule texts where people have to take responsibility for what they're doing and for their sins, in those rule texts, responsibility is placed firmly on people. In other words, in prayers, we presented it as uh, maybe out of people's hands, but as soon as they come and they're agreeing to the laws, all of a sudden it's their responsibility, right? All of a sudden we start talking about choice again. So recognize, and I say this all the time, that in certain cases the genre is what's going to determine how you talk about sin. In other words, I'm praying now so I can say, oh, I need God's help. But as soon as I'm agreeing to follow laws, I can't say that I need God's help anymore, To the same, ex- at least not to the same extent. I have to take some responsibility for my actions, and we're going to see that in a future episode. So I'm going to add one more sectarian prayer that also sheds light on this idea, and it gives another perspective on the nature of sin and its source, and one that's not always compatible with the view that we saw in the Hodayot. Now, I'm going to remind you that the Dead Sea Scrolls is a really varied collection. Even the texts that we consider sectarian that all belong to the community do not always agree with each other. So, for example, uh, the Damascus document and the community rule don't agree in terms of their rules with each other completely, or in, 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 in actually many, in many respects. And we'll have prayers that reflect different ideas about sin, and we've already seen that there are these prayers that talk more about demonic sin, now we're talking more about the evil inclination, different texts that talk more about demons, certain texts that are not looking at that, different ideas about what Blial does, right? The Damascus document has one view of Blial, and the community rule has a different view of Blial, specifically in terms of how Blial acts among people. So we've seen that, and we're going to see it with, with sectarian prayers as well. So now I'm reading from the hymn of praise that's in the community rule. And in in this hymn, what we're going to see is that chosenness, and this relates a little bit to your question, Melissa, that in the hymn of praise, in the Hodayot, it sounded like, okay, now he's been chosen, now he's not going to sin anymore. That's what it sounded like, right? In the hymn of praise, he's going to keep sinning. He knows he's going to fall again. I'll read a few passages just kind of to to show what's similar and what's different. So this is a speaker who's talking about, he's describing his status as one who was chosen through divine enlightenment. In other words, like the speaker in the Odayot, he's been chosen, and it brought him up a level. He leveled up. So he says, um, and I'm reading from column 11, rather, uh, line 3, And in his, that is God's, righteousness, he will wipe out my sins. 
For from the font of his wisdom, he revealed his light and my eyes gazed upon his wonders. In other words, there was, I had a kind of a revelation and God through his righteousness is wiping out my past sins. And once more, we're going to see this idea that humans are naturally sinful. He says, and I'm reading from line nine, and I belong to wicked humanity and to the assembly of unrighteous flesh. My iniquities, my transgressions, my sins, as well as the perverseness of my heart belong to the assembly of maggots and of those who walk in darkness. In other words, people are sinful. I am one of them, and that means I am sinful. For is a human's way his own? Now we're coming back to the determinism and predestination that's very reflective of the community's view of how God determines everything. He says, for is a human's way his own? And the human cannot establish his step. For to God alone is the judgment, and from his hand is the perfection of the way. And by his knowledge, all has occurred. And all which in existence he establishes through his design, and without him, nothing shall be done. So in case we we wanted to say this wasn't like the Hodayot in that view, no, it agrees with the Hodayot, it agrees with the standard community view that God has determined all actions from the beginning of time and that humans are naturally sinful, and that it's connected to the fact that they're physical and to the assembly of unrighteous flesh. In Hebrew, ulisod basal of it. Okay? I belong to this assembly of unrighteous flesh. Now, the description of divine determination of all human action is meant to explain how the speaker can maintain his chosen status despite the fact that he still sins, right? He's asking God to clean, he, he says, God has cleansed my sins and we'll see that he expects to sin again. However, however, he does request that God will establish my footsteps for the way. We're going to read that soon. And he relies on God for help in preventing further sin. So let's let's look a little bit more closely at how this, this person expects to sin in the future. But because of his status, God will help him and he'll cleanse his sins and help him in the future. I'm reading from lines 11 to 15. And I, if I stumble, the kindness of God is my salvation forever. And if I totter in fleshly iniquity, my judgment is by God's justice, which endures forever. So note the speaker's expecting to sin. He says, if I stumble, if I totter, but God will still be there for me. And if he will relieve my distress, and he will rescue my soul from the pit, and he will establish my footsteps for the way, in his mercy he has drawn me near, and in his kindness he will bring my judgment. In the righteousness of his truth he judges me, and in his great goodness he will atone for all my iniquities. And in his righteousness he will purify me of the impurity of humanity and of the sin of humans, to praise God for his righteousness and the Most High for his glory. So what we see is that he expects to sin. And despite the fact that he sins, the fact that he has the status, God, because he's chosen, God is going to help him. He'll judge him fairly and he'll help him not sin again. And he will atone for his iniquities. It says, That was the Hebrew of those, of those, those term phrases in English, that God will atone for my iniquity. So he expects to sin again, and he expects God's help. Now, by the way, this actually fits within a larger framework of Second Temple prayer in general. In other words, outside of the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's a general idea of a righteous person who sins. I've mentioned this before, that you can have a person who says, I am righteous, but I sinned to God, for, please forgive me for my sins. So there's the idea that a righteous person can still kind of 
fall sometimes, can sin sometimes, and still be forgiven because I know that I'm righteous. We've discussed this before. And so in the hymn of praise in the community rule, the speaker is expecting to sin. He says, not only have I sinned in the past, I'm going to sin again. But even if I do sin, God is going to help me. God, because of my status, God will help me. And God is going to, is still going to purify me of the impurity of humanity and the sin of humans. So, he's going to purify me from this impurity that humanity has because God is with me. So God is going to do everything and this person doesn't have to do anything or have any responsibility for his own actions? Again, I don't think that he actually thinks he has no responsibility. And note the way he says, if I stumble, right? If I stumble in sin, okay, I think that, yes, he's reducing his responsibility because he's calling it a mistake, right? Shouldn't he atone also? Ah, so but you need God to kind of cleanse you. So the the words the words used for atone here is He'll do a kapara, he'll kind of do um a usually we use the word atone here, but it could kind of redeem me from my sins. So okay. okay, so the idea isn't that he's not going to atone at all. And again, again, this is why we need to remind ourselves that we're praying here. <laughs> this guy is praying. He's saying, even if God, you're so great that even when I sin, you still help me. Even when I sin, you'll forgive me and you'll send my, my feet back to the way. And I think that's, that's why it's good that we've kind of been talking again and again and again of what kind of the setup of prayer does. So that in the Hodayot and in the Hymn of Praise, we see the full impact of the determinism of the Qumran community and this belief the God of predestination and predestination and determinism, where predestination is that God chooses people from the beginning to be, let's say, good or bad, and also the determinism that God determines what their actions will be. And we see this belief reflected both in the Hodeo and the hymn of praise, right? That goes along with this idea that because I am chosen, God has kind of redeemed me from this baked-in state of sinfulness that physical humanity has. And God saved me from that because I'm chosen, because of the predestination, because I've been chosen from the beginning of time. And the fact that God determines all, all my actions doesn't mean that I won't necessarily stumble, but then God will will forgive me. He'll, he'll atone. There, there will be kind of a cleansing of my sins, and then God will direct me back onto the right path. And what we're going to see in a future episode is that, in fact, when we talk about where we would expect people to take responsibility, namely in the rule books, that's not what is said. It's not the extreme determinism we see here. There is determinism, there is predestination, but it doesn't relieve people of responsibility. While here, it, you could certainly, you know, kind of do the logical consequences should be that I'm not responsible. Okay, and I, I don't think that in action people were even, like, the, the members of the group were allowed to make that leap because then you had the rules, right? You had to keep the rules. There were real real consequences of not keeping the rules. And when you accepted the rules, they made it very clear that it's up to you. In the final analysis, you have to choose God's will, and we're going to talk about that in a future episode. So what have we seen in these two sectarian prayers? We've actually seen... Two aspects that, in a way, need to go together. So what we see is that in these texts, in particular, humanity must be sinful. They're so sinful because they're physical. 
Now, once you say that, once you say the very fact of being a physical being means that I live in a sinful state, the question is, well, then how in the world can a human get out of it? How in the world can a human not sin? And the answer that these prayers provide and the answer that the Dead Sea sect seems to have chosen in general, or or at least in, in, in many cases, is chosenness, is election. Why will I not be sinful despite the fact that all humanity lives in this physical state, which means they're sinful? Well, I've been chosen by God. I've been chosen by God and I've been raised to something above. Does that mean that I don't live among human beings? Well, in the second prayer that we looked at, that's clearly not true. He still thinks he may stumble. He might still sin. And yet he's been chosen. He's been raised above this normal state of humanity, which is kind of this physical sinfulness, to be a more almost on a plane with the angels or perhaps in Hodayot, on a plane with the angels to be able to be free of the sinfulness that seems to be the natural state of humanity. Because of this, they're able to be not sinful. And here we see in the need for chosenness, people say, I'm chosen, that kind of goes along naturally with this idea of predestination, that from the beginning of time, God chose certain people to be chosen. So you see how these different aspects of the Qumran philosophy kind of fit together and in certain cases even require each other. If I honestly believe that people are sinful because they're physical, I need some way to get out of it. Being chosen by God is a way to get out of it, okay? Even though we also saw, remember in our last episode on non-sectarian prayers, we saw this idea that God through his presence can in fact prevent the evil inclination. So we have seen this idea of kind of a more general, not even election, a more general almost revelation, a more general connection with God, a live connection with God can make the evil inclination disappear or recede or intervention by God. Right, can remove this kind of horrible plant from inside me, or from inside the speaker, rather. Here, here, what we see is that, no, it's not just some kind of general request for help. It's not even just a general revelation, God's presence being among us. It is being chosen by God. It is being one of the chosen. That is what frees member of the Qumran community from the basic physical sinfulness of humanity. And I would like to welcome all the new listeners from the OnScript podcast. And please be aware this is part of a series, so you might want to listen to some older episodes. So for example, uh, Shayla commented on the last episode, thank you for your comment, and she brought up the whole idea of uh, sin coming from the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So Shayla, I really recommend that you go back and listen to my first episode where I actually kind of go into the story of Adam and Eve to see whether it's really about the origin of sin or not. So I recommend that. And I look forward to all your future comments and questions. Please leave your comments and questions at understandingsin.com. Thank you. And I'll see you next time. You have been listening to Understanding Sin and Evil with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com.